0: Well, we are cruising along in the book of Genesis. Uh, We are going to be looking, last week we looked at Genesis 12 and 15, the covenant as God uh, called Abram to himself. And today we're going to back up a little bit into Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at this little story uh, of this guy that just kind of pops into the biblical narrative for three verses and then pretty much disappears until the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, he gets like almost three chapters. And it's kind of like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And why is he such a big deal? At least in the book of Hebrews. His name's Melchizedek, And we don't know a lot about him. <laughs> what we do know about him is that he was simply a priest of righteousness. The king of Salem. And he blessed Abram. So we're going to read that, and then we'll, we'll get into this. So let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Genesis chapter 14, uh, verses 8 to 20. Get ready for some names. <laughs> then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela—that that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketalaamir, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitmum pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Anner; These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, and his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I'm going to finish the chapter because I think it's important. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshcol and Mamre take their share. And then over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter seven and verses one to ten. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of the most high God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abram and to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, and in one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case by one of whom is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. So, Melchizedek kind of a bizarre person. Shows up for three verses and then he kind of disappears. And we're going to look at this. There is tons of different... Things about this that we could chase down, dwell into, dig into, and it would take a long time to do this. Because in Hebrews, the discussion about Melchizedek actually starts in chapter 5 and goes all the way through chapter 7. Uh, three chapters, this kind of comes and goes and comes back and forth. But the key thing to remember is that Melchizedek is never the focus. In fourteen Genesis 14, Abram is the focus. And what Abraham has done is important. And in Psalm 110, the only other time in in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned, Melchizedek is not the focus. He is seen as a type that the the king is supposed to mimic and follow. And then in Hebrews chapter 5 to 7, Melchizedek isn't the point. The point is that Jesus is better than anything. And over and over, this is the thing that comes up in Hebrews. Whether it's the temple, the sacrifice, uh, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Moses himself and the law, the main point is that Jesus is greater than all of these things. And so we need to keep this in mind. The main focus is not Melchizedek. The main focus is Abraham in this story and the fact that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek when we get to Hebrews. So that's, that's, we have to really make sure we remember that or else we go down some very questionable rabbit trails, really. Well, let's take a look at, at Genesis 14 first and see what happens in this story. The first thing that happens is that God's servant, Abram, rescues a captured relative. Okay, that's kind of the setting for the whole story is that Lot and Abram have separated. Go back to Genesis 13 because they were getting too big and their herdsmen were fighting. And so Abram's like, okay, let's split up. You go one way, I'll go the other. You go this way, I'll go that way. And let's just settle this. Let's not have a big family fight here because um, we don't need to do that. There's lots of land. We can can navigate this, it's okay. But if you look at where Lot ends up, and he does this repeatedly, (laughs) You kind of got to ask the question. You know, there's Lot and there's Abram, and the story goes back and forth between the two of them. Lot cho- chooses the spot that looks great. There's lots of water, lush fields, and I'm going to pitch my tent near Sodom. Now, most people know, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is like the is the epitome of wickedness you know, throughout the Bible. And he pitches his tent near there, but then eventually he's living in the city, and then you get to chapter 19, and he's totally ingrained in the city. So What happens here is no sooner does Lot disconnect from Abram than he finds himself in trouble, and this is his pattern, because as we get to later in the book, Abraham has to intercede for Sodom, because God says, the wickedness has come up to me, and I'm done, we're going to destroy this place, and Abram has to intercede there, well, uh, Abram ends up interceding earlier for his family here as well. But it seems that Lot always gets in trouble when he disconnects himself from Abram. Because remember what the covenant said. Through you, Abram, all nations will be blessed. They have, but they have to be connected to you. Uh, the the uh, alternative translation, because there's kind of a reflexive thing that happens. And all families of the earth shall be blessed. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or in you all the families of the earth shall find their blessing. So to separate from Abram is to separate from this blessed state that God has for humanity. And disconnecting from the community of faith, literally or emotionally, can put us in danger. And so like this this right here i think has has a bit of an application how are we connecting uh, family-wise as a faith community fostering connection or how might you go after a family member that's maybe gotten into trouble right cuz abram does this he's like he's he's going to pursue he's going to get family back family means everything. I think we touched on this last week too. In the ancient Near East, family means everything. In in non-Western cultures, family means everything. It's not individual, my rights are, are above the community. It's the community is more important than the individual. God's servant rescues a captured relative. And there's two sides maybe of application out of this first thing that we see in this story is that we pursue community and we pursue when a family member's in trouble and we go after them. And the other side is stay connected to community because that's a place of blessing. Second thing that happens, we get to, after Abram goes and he rescues Lot and brings, brings him and all of these possessions back, he has this, uh, like, just think about this for a moment. You've got five kings who come in, and they're from all over the place. You've got this uh, um, Shinar, the king of Shinar, and this, this is, uh, we've already known from back in chapter 11 that this is Babylon. And so you've got some fairly significant players on the field here, and five of them team up, they defeat these other kings. But Abram and only 318 men go in and and white, you know, and and rescue Lot and take all the possessions and all the people back. They don't lose people. And brings them all back. And this is, you know, the, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah had to basically say thank you to Abraham for bringing their people back too. Like Abram's, these other four kings get defeated, but Abram goes and defeats the five kings and brings people back uh, and rescues them. But what we have here is that two people come out to greet Abram when he comes back, right? It's not just Melchizedek that comes out to greet him. You have two. A meeting with two kings. The king of Sodom came out with a demand, and the king of Salem came out with a blessing. And these two meetings, are we're supposed to see them, one is happening at the same time, but in contrast with one another. Uh, the, the Hebrew syntax uh, works this way. Uh, there, there's, there's two different ways a sentence can be structured in these two meetings where it's using the same verb in a different form, Uh, And it's putting these two characters in contrast. At the same time that they come out, it's a simultaneous action. Both kings are coming out to meet Abram as he comes back from winning this battle. But we're also supposed to see that they're different. And and, and the, the author is very careful in how he constructs this narrative. He says, I want you to know that these two guys, these two kings, one from Sodom, one from Salem, come out at the same time, but they respond to Abram very differently. You see, everybody here has benefited from Abram's actions, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. But one comes with a demand. We get to the end of the passage, and Abram said, I have, uh, he says, give me the people. (laughs) Like the first words out of the king of Sodom's mouth are a command. Give me. The first action of the king of Salem is, Here's bread and wine. Refresh yourselves. You've come from battle. And the first words out of his mouth are, Blessed be Abram. Very different response to Abram's action of of winning a war on their behalf. One has a demand. One has a blessing. And this all reflects back. This is an example story of what God had promised. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, him I will curse. What happens to Sodom later on? Gets pretty bad. What happens to the king of Salem? Well, we don't know about him specifically, but most scholars agree that Shalem from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace, is Jerusalem, Jerusalem. As king of Salem, later this this city becomes the place where God chooses to have his name dwell. God's servant is blessed by a priest of Most High God. Melchizedek brings refreshment and he brings blessing the king of Sodom brings demand and attempts to put Abram in his debt. But we already know his heart and his purpose back in chapter 13. The narrator's already told us, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that will be borne out as the narrative goes on. So Abram rescues a relative. Abram receives a blessing from this priest of the... uh, uh, priest of the most high God, and he calls him El Elyon. And then Abram responds with the same thing. I have sworn by Yahweh El Elyon not to take anything. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram responds to the king of Sodom with the same words that he received the blessing from Melchizedek. And so they're somewhere on the same theological understanding of who God is. Again, we don't know where this guy comes from. This is the point of Hebrews. We don't know where he comes from. Um, he doesn't have a genealogy, so he's not, necessarily, he's not a legitimate priest. But God has made him a priest. Melchizedek responds properly to Abram and God's work in his life. The king of Sodom does not. So Abram receives a blessing, and then how does how does Abram respond? And we don't why why does Abram respond this way? Abram tithes to the priest of the Most High God. Why? I think it's because Abram recognizes that they both worship the same God, and he is identified as a priest. Now in in Hebrews chapter 7 talks about this tithing thing a little bit, and it says, you know, Levi receives tithes because it's commanded in the law. Well, this is a long time before the law. This is a spontaneous act of thanksgiving on the part of Abram to what God has provided for him, that God has won the victory. Blessed be El Elyon who has delivered your enemies into your hands. This is The, the, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, knows and he declares that this was a, this was a work of God in your life. And Abram responds with, yes, this is the work of God. And therefore, I will will give freely from what God has blessed me with. I think another interesting thing here is, again, we don't know Melchizedek's background. We don't know how he became a priest or he he is a king. He is a priest. Um, God has called Abram specifically to be a blessing to all nations. But here we find somebody that is outside of Abram's family and connection and yet a worshiper of God. And the question is, and I think the reality is, God is at work beyond Abram in the world already too. It's not like, I have Abram, everybody else I'm just going to ignore. That's not what's going on. God's at work. God's at work beyond just this one covenant partner. And that's kind of the message of Jonah too, right? The book of Jonah, the main message is, you know, God can be at work in the people you think least deserve it. These men of Nineveh. And and that's kind of the message to Israel. The most reluctant prophet goes to the most wicked nation and they repent in dust and ashes. And Israel, you should have done the same thing. God is at work beyond Abraham and beyond the, the specific covenant partner. But that's also why he's kind of in the story, out of the story, because God's focus is Abram and his family. God's servant ties to the priest of Most High God in the Levitical priesthood. Here, and we go back to uh, Hebrews chapter seven. The main point of this is that Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that you know. The, the Levitical priesthood that received ties because it was part of the Mosaic law. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that if Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood, he is also greater than Abram. But when we put this in the context of Jesus, he is greater than both. Melchizedek is a type or a shadow of what was to come and be fulfilled in Christ. And this is where the author of Hebrews ends up going with the whole discussion is that just like the temple, just like the sacrifices, just like the high priest, uh, just like the holy of holies, just like everything that Israel you've known as the way to God and the way to connect with God, Jesus is greater than it all. And you cannot go back and substitute these old things for the new thing that God has done in and through Jesus Christ. You can't go back to if you just show up at the temple all the time and you make the right sacrifices and the right priest is in charge, then you can, you can be in, uh, uh, on the in crowd. God has done something new and radical in Jesus Christ so that that priesthood is now obsolete, that the sacrificial system is now obsolete, that the temple and the Holy of Holies is no longer to be found in a building in Jerusalem, but in the person of Jesus Christ. All of it was a shadow. Melchizedek himself, simply a shadow brought to fullness in Jesus Christ. And this leads us to one of our essential doctrines. 99 of these we're covering over the next three years. Is in this, this, Jesus Christ is our priest. As our great high priest, Jesus accomplishes the work of reconciling us to God. He is the one Whose perfect righteousness is presented to the Father for our justification. He is the one who intercedes for us before the Father and prays for us to remain faithful. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Jesus is our righteousness. He's the Melchizedek was this King of Peace, the King of Salem, and the King who was righteous. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is our peace. Again, Hebrews puts Jesus as the greater than any former communication, provision that God had ever given. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. The fulfillment of every sanctuary and every sacrifice, it is complete in him. And Jesus, near the end of his life in John chapter 14, his followers are like, what's going on? Where are we going? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Philip, I think it's Philip, asks him, well, Lord, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And he says, how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews, the whole book starts off with this. And uh, God spoke to our forefathers at many times in various ways, but in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is greater than any angel, greater than Moses, greater than the temple, greater than the sacrifices, greater than the priests, greater than even this priest who has no lineage. Jesus is always greater. No matter what. And as I reflect on Genesis chapter 14 and I see two things happening here. I see Abram's uh, rescue of Lot and I see Lot's need of rescue. Jesus is the greater Abram who defeats our captors those things that hold us in bondage and, and wrap us up in ourselves. And he defeats our sin and he defeats the, 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 the ways of the world that keep us trapped in our brokenness and he brings us home. Jesus is the greater Abram who brings us home. So this is part of our first response First response question, how does realizing Jesus is both your great high priest and king change your understanding of the gospel? Because this is one of the things that Hebrews is doing. Jesus is the greater king. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is the greater priest. He is the great high priest who intercedes for us with with, uh, knowing everything that we could ever go through. And Jesus is the greater Abram who defeats our captors and brings us home. But Jesus is also the greater priest who refreshes our souls and blesses us with his presence. We have no greater mediator, no greater authority. The gospel, the good news is the greatness of God's victory over our sin and our brokenness that attacks us, enslaves us, and ensnares us. And God pursues us and brings us home. Jesus is the greater deliverer who defeats the greater kings. He crushes the serpent's head. He is the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham that crushes the head of the serpent and brings blessing to all nations. The greater priest who offers us the greatest blessing we could imagine. How do we respond to this? Secondly, from the heart, what are some of the ways that you will bless the Lord because of the great victory over sin that he has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ? How will you respond from the heart to what Jesus has done? Worship. Worship. You know, this is what Abram does. he gives a tenth of everything. The worship isn't just singing but it's it's prayer, it's meditation, it's thanksgiving, it's celebration, it's giving of our resources. Hebrews twelve, one and two. How do we respond to the amazing work of God in our lives. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have lived and walked with God in the past, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Back in Genesis 14, Melchizedek praised God. Praised God, acknowledged God's hand on Abram's life, acknowledged God's deliverance for Abram, and gratefully thanked Abram on behalf of his city and his tribe as the king of peace, the king of Salem. Because he had been blessed by God's deliverance, he thanked and blessed God. And blessed be El Elyon, who defeated these kings for you. And so the only words out of Melchizedek's mouth are praise, or blessing, or worship, or poetry. He sings: Blessed be, blessed be El Elyon, God Most High. We bless the Lord in our songs and in our prayer and in our thinking through his scripture and thanksgiving and celebration and just in worship and love of who God is with all that we are and all that we have. Third response from our hands, what are some specific ways that you will give to support the mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus both locally and globally. Abram tithed, not as a duty and not as a response to a command, but out of response to the blessing. Right? He didn't just show up and go, hey, you're a priest, I'm going to tithe to you. It was a response to the blessing that, that was prayed over him, that, that, that Melchizedek said, blessed are you, Abram, by God most high and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth again not as a duty not as a response to command but out of response to the blessing. And giving financially is a response to God's work in our lives. It is a thankful willing response the work of Jesus Christ, the blessing that he has poured out on us. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about giving generously and he's encouraging the Corinthian church to, to, to finish something that they started. He says, but as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace only. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so Paul here is saying, I, I want you to give generously, not, not because it's a command that I'm issuing you, but because you are amazed at the grace and the goodness of God. That's our motive for giving. That has to be the heart motive of giving is a response to God's wonderful, amazing, boundless grace. It's not just so that, you know, we can pay the bills here. (laughs) It's because God has done a marvelous work through Jesus Christ for you. That's your motive for giving. Well, have you ever felt a really small part of, or, or that your, your part in a story doesn't matter much? I was going to start with this, but I'll end with it. <laughs> you know, Melchizedek shows up on the scene, three verses. That's it. <whistles> Gone. Only two other mentions in the whole Bible. It doesn't seem like he mattered much at the moment. You know, Abram doesn't go back to him over and over again. It's just this one encounter, this one blessing. But you never know what kind of impact your life might have. Melchizedek appeared once in Scripture, his one act of worship and service. Plants a seed. That the author of Hebrews centuries later uses to speak of the greatness and the supremacy and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And so maybe your commitment to God isn't isn't broadly known. Maybe your giving seems small. But God may be doing something much, much greater. You never know what part you may be playing in God's grand narrative of blessing the world. Abram rescues a family member, brings him home. Jesus reaches out to us and says, I want you home. God's servant is blessed by a priest of Most High God and and in this blessing we see that, that God is responding to his covenant. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who speak ill of you, I will curse. And then... Out of this blessing, Abram tithes and gives to this priest. But Jesus is greater, and he has given more than a simple blessing. He has not just given us a snack on the way back from a battle, he has given us himself. He is the greater Abram who defeats our captors and brings us home, and he is the greater priest who refreshes our souls and blesses us with his eternal presence and his eternal service for us as our great high priest who offers a much, much greater blessing. Let's pray. Lord, so much in these passages, and yet I think it just comes down to this simple thing. Jesus, you are greater you rescue us and you bring us home. You have defeated sin and death and Satan on the cross and you have pursued us to bring us home. And so Holy Spirit, may we respond to this work of Jesus Christ and your work in our hearts and lives. May we say yes to you, Lord Jesus. May we just worship you for what you have done and may we surrender our lives to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the great high priest who forever intercedes with us, for us, in us. And Lord, may we be cheerful, thankful, worshipers, who give out of an abundance of love for you, Lord Jesus, and the family that you have made us part of. Lord, take um, these passages of Scripture. Help us to understand them, mull over them, chew on them, meditate on them, discuss them, wrestle with them. Help us to know you better. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive, that you are interceding for us right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have accomplished the work of reconciliation for us to be brought to God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that your righteousness was provided for us. That he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That we are justified freely by your grace. That you are the one who intercedes for us. And that you are praying for us to remain faithful to you. Open our eyes, Lord, to the amazing grace that is available in Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter thirteen twenty to twenty one. Let's be our benediction. Let's stand. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will